When we humble ourselves, confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive us our sin and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Again, present continuous tense. That's from 1 John chapter 1. Our faith in the finished work of Christ is from day to day. Hello and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Dr. William Mazzella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. This week is episode 29. Our teacher will unpack from Romans 8.15 the contrast set up by the Apostle Paul between the sinner's induction to the fatherhood of the devil by receiving a spirit of slavery through fear or receiving a spirit of freedom by adoption into the family of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. As always, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you praise for your holy word. It's a good word. It's a word of grace of mercy, of peace. It's a word by which we can be contented. We can love you because we come to know understanding, the understanding of forgiveness, the grace of God, concepts that are alien until we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I ask your Heavenly Father that you would open our eyes and allow us to receive the light necessary to discern your word, these wonderful and gracious doctrines, teachings of your word. But Lord, as important and vital as those doctrines are, I ask, Lord, that you would give us knowledge in our heart for living, to turn the word of God into something that becomes a day-to-day reality that drives the good news of the gospel home to our hearts so that we might see clearly to walk uprightly, righteously, in a holy way, to be a, a light to the world. Lord, we're sent into the world as Christians to be a light to the world. We once walked in darkness, but then we received the glorious light, not our light, but a light that belongs to Jesus Christ because he is the light of the world. May we see Jesus in all his glory. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is episode 29, and the name of it, the title of this message is The Spirit of Adoption. It's from Romans 8.16, primarily from the the Roman Revelation series. But we're going to look at four verses, Romans 8, 2, 8, 14, 8, 15, and 8, 19. And we're going to read them right now. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. For the eagerly awaiting creation 
waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So why these four verses? Well, we're in Romans 8. And they have certainly this matter of freedom attached to them. Also, this adoption of sons contained in these verses. But also, the spirit of the living God. That's the thing that sews them all together, pretty much. And so... As we look at these verses, I want us to see that basically there are two reasons for lost people to look at those who profess Christ and think, if that is what it means to be a Christian, I want no part of it. That's a sad state if that's the way it is, but oftentimes, I mean, we all run into people who have been offended by the church who are angry at the church, who've been a, you know, had turned, people turn them off to the things of God because of religion, not because of Christ. The first reason for a, pe- a person to be turned off is that either the church has a mixture of true and false converts, and many passages in the New Testament warn the church about mixing true and false converts. We have Matthew 18, Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Peter 2, Jude, a host of scriptures throughout the New Testament that make it very clear that the church is for believers. The church reaches out and is to go into all the world and make disciples. But within the confines of the church, which really the church is, the hearts of believers, it's people who have turned to Christ, turned from their sin, and been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They've placed their faith in Christ. This key element, sad to say, in in many churches, is all but lost. And there's false religions, there's cults, and there's sects and isms. and, and, uh, And, well, in the Old Testament, compromise was the sin that brought a generation generations of Israel to destruction. They were supposed to come out and be not part of the world. But again and again, you know, they wanted to be like the world. We want a king like all the nations. And this brought destruction to the nation. And their captivity, again, they inter- after their captivity, they intermingled with the Gentile nations, which brought about one of the most dramatic scenes in all the Old Testament found in Ezra chapter 10. And if you want, go back, and I'm not going to spend time now to go read the intensity of the weather and what was going on uh, through Ezra and, you know, to bring the people to a place of living a holy life before God. It is a great stumbling block for the world to look upon believers and see them as representing Jesus Christ. Only a believer carries the spirit of the living God within their heart. And only they can properly represent God to a lost and dying world. So the second reason for lost people to frown upon Christians is when Christians walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. Rather than looking on an unbeliever and thinking they're a believer, in this case, they're looking at a believer. But the believer isn't walking by the spirit, they're walking by the flesh. Jesus said to the disciples, he said that the spirit is willing 
in believers, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, we need to pray. The Christian must be set free to live unto God in an acceptable way, and thereby to be pleasing to Jesus Christ and his Father. Romans 8, verses 1 to 4 says this, and makes this principle a necessity and a living reality. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to all those who are in Christ Jesus. And one of our main verses, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh? Let us not make any assumptions in this regard, but understand what the Bible has to say. First, we must make a distinction between those who walk in the Spirit and those who possess the Spirit by reason of salvation. So to look at that, let us look at Romans 8, 9, which says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So in this verse, Paul is making this distinction that people who are who the Holy Spirit lives within their heart, they are not in the flesh. Not, this is different than walking according to the flesh. This is they're no longer in the flesh. Why? Because if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the Spirit of God, let me say it again, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So you're in the Spirit, if the Spirit is dwelling in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, people who belong to Christ can have assurance of salvation because they belong to Christ. (laughs) And God doesn't give up what cost Jesus Christ eternal suffering hanging on the cross to, to redeem back, to buy back to God. Once a person belongs to God through the sacrifice of Christ, that's a done deal on that basis. Not on the basis of a choice that a person makes, but on the basis of the blood of Christ. This is very important to understand. I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that subject. But when you read the scripture, you have to understand the value of the blood of Christ. God the Father doesn't tread lightly. He doesn't tread at all on the blood of His Son, on the sacrifice made. And there are many passages, especially in Hebrews, throughout the New Testament, that elevate the blood of Christ. By that means, people are saved. Now, as we look at this, please do not jump on what I'm about to say without at least hearing me through. And give me sufficient time. 
And what I'm about to say is no man can walk with God purely in his sinful flesh. Hear that again. Let me say that again. No man can walk with God purely in his sinful flesh. Which is why this scripture says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. No man can please God in the flesh alone. We cannot read that we satisfy God purely in the flesh out of Romans 8 or anywhere in the New Testament. Nevertheless, men through the Old Testament day were pleasing to God. And I'm I'm bringing this up not to dwell on this particular subject, but by understanding the distinctions between the Old and New Testament, we, we, we should come to a fuller knowledge of what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit, to be possessed by God as a possession through the Holy Spirit which lives within, between that and living according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. That's what's behind this whole lesson. Some are found in Hebrews 11, and there are many more that are not included but were pleasing to God. Old Testament saints were pleasing to God. Get this, Genesis chapter 5, verses 5 through 22 to 24, beginning in Genesis 5, 22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he fathered Methuselah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. These also, so all, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Again, in Hebrews 11, 5, and 6, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For before he was taken up, he was attested to have been pleasing to God. Well, it doesn't anymore, can't be any more clear that he had a testimony, and that testimony was he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Now again, go slow on here. Give me a chance to follow through with what I'm saying. Now he stops for a second just to think. Let's stop just for a second. Not be proponents of our denomination or our seminaries that teach that the Holy Spirit was in no way given before Pentecost. They teach that in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon people for service, but that was it. No abiding in the Old Testament. The key to understand the big plan, you have to understand why God allowed sin redemption, identification with Christ, so that men could walk with God and be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Because to understand what makes God happy is that everything comes from him. God cannot be happy unless it comes from him first. That's a hard concept for us to believe and understand because, see, we live out our own lives, we make our own choices, we we, we do things by our own effort. We put on our own socks. We, you know, we learn things with our own mind. You know, we're independent of God. Because without Him, however, to God, 
Everything is idolatry. God is only and always pleased by what he does, and apart from him, we can do nothing except sin. When we're on our own, what we do is we sin. We are the vine, he is the branch. In him we live and move and have our being. In sin, we all went our own way, according to Isaiah. And we boast in it and think we're something great. Yeah, we're greater, right? We're great as sinners. Full of pride and deserving God because we forget about God. Only saints find God as he is meant to be found. And then they walk with him. The man who's full of pride and thinks that he, he, makes, he, make, he pleases God on his own merit is, is not a saint, he's a sinner. That's what sinners are. Every saint that ever lived in every age walked with God by the Spirit because they couldn't do it in the flesh. Let's consider Moses for a minute. And I'm going to bring this around so that we can understand things so that it should be pleasing to a person who understands something happened at Pentecost. as Of course, it certainly did. And I'm going to get there. In Numbers chapters 27, 15, and 16, it says this, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of humanity, appoint a man over the congregation. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Did you hear that? That's what it says. Look it up if you need to in the Hebrew. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Well, they can't mean that. I mean, the Spirit only came upon men. But that's not what it says. Concerning Daniel, the prophet in the fifth chapter, was called upon because, according to the queen, a spirit of the gods dwelt in him. She didn't understand the concept of the one true God, obviously, but she got the fact that there was something going on with this man spiritually. Daniel tells the interpretation of the writing on the wall without any fear of the king, lays him out about his pride like his father, and gives the king's reward back to him. And then he told the king after that, this is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tico, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar, that's the king, gave the command. And Daniel, no, not lose his head, was clothed with purple, a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation made about him that he should be third ruler, third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the, the Chaldean king, was killed. Now, understand something about Daniel. The spirit came upon him undoubtedly and gave him the wisdom to these words and gave him understanding of what was going on. But Daniel was a holy man all the way from the first chapter. I mean, he, he, he was a youth. As a youth, he was a, he was a holy man of God. In chapter 1 of verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the vine that he, wine that he drank. This was a man who was a man who was a man of prayer. And at the cost of his life, constantly, men were always out to get him. God was protected him all the, the years of his life. 
And as they did, and as he lived for God, he lived what? In the, in the flesh? <laughs> Let us make no mistake. Daniel lived a godly life by the light he received and by the presence of the Holy Spirit according to that light. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Where did he get the light and the power and the presence to live a holy life from the heart? Channel nine, look at chapter 9. and nine. What is he, he, he numbers himself with that generation in total humility, pours out and just like Isaiah, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips among people of unclean lips. And how does a person who's just in the flesh do that? The Old Testament saints, of course, were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When I say such things, many will come to me and they will quote from John 7, 38 and 39. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he said in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I totally understand, totally believe that that is absolutely biblical, and I would stand to defend every word rightly understood. To which I will respond, however, there is a new covenant that was once an old. Under the old covenant, man lived by the law. He was bound by the law, could in no way live to measure up to the law. He could not experience freedom that we have living under the new covenant, being freed from the law. However, Paul never speaks in Romans 8 or any writing in the New Testament as if walking in the Spirit is automatic. Now get this. See, there's the being in the Spirit and there's walking according to the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit that comes upon for salvation and for guidance and for direction and for leading and for obedience. Uh, but none of those things are ever really automatic. Let me give you one reference that I could give. I could give many, and I'm not just saying that, but here's the thing. I don't have time. But since the Bible never contradicts itself, one reference will suffice for the sake of time. And do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine in which there is debauchery. There is this giving ourselves over where all the inhibitions are gone and we just live in, I mean, really live out the flesh where we would be hindered by, you know, caring what people think, getting ourselves in trouble, on and on. You know, when you're filled with wine, all of that goes away. And in contrast to that, he says, but be filled by the Spirit. Be filled is in the present continuous tense, which means it's not automatic, there are conditions to being filled with the Holy Spirit. What are the conditions of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Let me put it this way. The presence for salvation is automatic, but the fullness of the Spirit is an entirely different matter. It is conditional upon three basic things. One is humility. Second is the blood of Jesus. And third is faith. When sin enters in, 
to a believing person, any believing person, Old, New Testament, and, and we understand these things in the New, when, when sin enters in, the Holy Spirit's fullness leaves. I'll take that up in another lesson from Ephesians chapter 3, where it's very clearly taught. When we humble ourselves, confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive us our sin and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Again, present continuous tense. That's from 1 John chapter 1. Our faith in the finished work of Christ is from day to day. The Old Testament saints had the sacrificial system, the slaying of animals, the Levitical priesthood that could not take away sins. The Old Testament saints in those days were severely handicapped and for that reason could not know the fullness of the Spirit as we can. Let me make this caveat. I would not compare myself to any Old Testament saint. I would recommend you do the same or do not do the same because my accountability to walk in the Spirit is much greater than theirs. Nevertheless, when reading about Moses' And his intercession for the children of Israel, he puts me to shame. As do they all. I mean, not once or twice, but who knows how many times Moses offered himself up for the people that wanted to kill him. I mean, the children of Israel. I mean, it, it comes out in, in numerous passages. And, and, and Moses on the top of the hill and saying, blot me out. I mean, there's really very little difference between Moses back in the, in the days of the giving of the law, and, and the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 9 and 11. I mean, I could wish myself damned for the children of Israel. I mean, what's the difference? How did Moses get to that place where he's so sacrificial? So am I to understand that Moses did the things that he did walked with God through, throughout the Old Testament, referred to as the servant of God, and he did that in the flesh. Yeah, I, I, I can't do that. Old Testament saints could not possibly live as godly people with no Holy Spirit. This is an argument against reason. It's an argument against the Bible and God's plan for time and eternity. God works in the hand, in the in the hearts of believers, in every age. So then how do we understand the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as differing from the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old? With that statement in mind, let's consider Romans 8.2. Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And that brings us right back to the the way the whole Old Testament saints were under that covenant of works. Our motivation to live for God is Jesus in living color. He's no longer in the shadows as he was for those living under the covenant of the law. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of the holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You see, those days are over, the days of the shadow. 
the shadow of Christ. Picture, if you will, a stage. And before the actor comes out onto the stage and appears and, and does his thing, he casts a very long shadow. All you have is light and dark. You know that. There's a kind of a picture, but all it is, there's black and shades, and you get kind of a, an outline of what the person looks like. No features, no nothing. Just a black outline. And then he steps on the stage, and you got the color of his skin, his eyes, his hair, or no hair. You got his, not only his form, but you got wrinkles or no wrinkles. You got it, you get the picture. That's the Old Testament to the New. A coming Messiah, so that when he appears, like all the religious leaders and most of the people, like, is this him, not him? Tell us plainly, you know, when he's doing what he's supposed to do and he's healing a nation and he's preaching the gospel and he's, he's presenting himself and like, is this him or not him? You know, what's, what's and, and there's just darkness. I mean, if it was really clear about the Messiah to come, then everybody would know, oh, well, this is him. But you see, blind, blindness, sin blinds the minds of people. Sin just darkens the eyes. Jesus comes out with all the Old Testament as a, the only thing that the New Testament people had, by the way. You know, and it's just, it's dark. But then the Holy Spirit is given with Jesus having gone to the cross and we see God redeeming man for, for himself. And all the New Testament truths that come out. And with all of that laid before us, and the, the New Testament apostles uh, bringing forth the truth by the Spirit of the living God, that now they can to make the, the Old Testament just light up. Well, the Holy Spirit, when he's given, he's not given like he was in the Old Testament because they couldn't really see it. It wasn't in living color. It was a shadow of things to come. But now we have the complete picture. We, we have Jesus in living color. In chapter 8 and verse 15 of Romans, it says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. There's a huge, huge difference between a New Testament saint and the world. Much bigger difference than between an Old Testament saint and the world. Why? Because we don't just have a sacrificial system that looks somewhat like their own. Um, I mean, those animal sacrifices were not just for Israel. Uh, they were sacrificing children. You know, there's a difference. Um, but not like the difference that we have today. As children of God, the Christian has not received the spirit of slavery because that was acquired from the devil in Adam. And as the devil became a slave to his own lies, even so the human race became slaves to his lies. And it's very distinct, or should be very distinct. But you see, when Christians walk in the flesh, and when Christians don't even understand these truths themselves, well then the distinctions aren't as clear as they could be. Children of God receive the spirit of adoption. Therefore, we are adopted into the family of God. With such an adoption comes the assurance of salvation. Something nothing, 
Salvation, because nothing is stronger than the bond of family. Where does assurance of salvation come? It comes from the bond of family. You know, in the Old Testament saints didn't really have the picture of God as Father. I mean, their Father. When Jesus came out and he called God Father, they, they were abhorred by it. That's why Romans 8 brought such a, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 8 brought such a, uh, an indignant re response by the, the religious leaders. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're the eternal family for believers, for Christians. And all the sons of God made sons through identification with Christ through the shedding of the blood on the cross. The spirit of slavery is, dis is in direct contrast to a spirit of adoption spirit of slavery because the human race was inducted into the family of our father the devil, John 8, 44-47. think about it. You are of your father the devil, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Because he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I say the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? The one who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. One thing about Jesus, he definitely was a straight talker. He wasn't interested in influencing people and making friends. He was interested in the truth because he knew the truth shall set you free. That's what he said. And not only does the truth save, set people free, but it, 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 the source, the means by which God saves people. So he spoke to the leaders there and to the people and he said they were of the devil. And he said they didn't understand the truth. And he said they lived in lies. And they didn't live in such a way that was pleasing to God. At present, we live in a culture that recoils from the idea of making judgments. Judgment, not that you be judged and judge not that you be not judged is on everybody's lips. Let us listen to Jesus' words in context from Matthew 7, 1-5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And that's it. Hands off. We're done. No judging. And then it goes on in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not Notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. And look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. Don't miss it. First, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, that? I never hear that verse quoted. All the rest is fine. But verse 5, 
you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's just assumed that the speck is never, the log is never going to come out of our own eye, and therefore we never have the right to judge anybody else. Well, that's strange because Jesus got done telling these people in John chapter 8 that, well, uh, for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. The one who is of God hears the words of God. But if you hear the words of God, and if you are of God, and you live in the truth, what would be the problem with judging? Well, the reason Jesus gives us the admonition not to judge is not so we will never judge. It is so we won't judge incorrectly. If we are never to judge in the church, what in the world is Paul speaking about when he wrote to the church in, to Corinth? Chapter 6, what does he say? Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and, and not before the saints? Well, I understand that this is greatly used to make sure that we don't go to the law courts, but that's not the only thing being said here. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the, judge, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to form the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are not of no account in the church? He's making a distinction between the world and the church. The, the church is meant to be the ones who can judge because we are to be seeing clearly. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you anyone wise who will be able to decide between his brothers and sisters? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. I mean, it's just, this is not brain surgery here. Judgment is given to the church. All kinds of judgments we, we, we want no part of. Why? Well, if you're going to go judging somebody else, you better have your house in order and see because we don't have our houses in order, then we can't do uh, any, we can't help clean anybody else's house. That doesn't sound like godly living to me. Does it sound like godly living to you? Jesus tells us how to judge, and we need to understand how to judge today. First and foremost, we must take the log out of our eye, the log of pride that judges our brothers out of pride, built upon assumptions, not fairly and out of love. Matthew 18 is a scenario that instructs a Christian to approach a brother with doubts and fears. I mean, first he's going to go alone, and then maybe he's going to go with two or three, and then he'll bring it behind all, with the whole church. But wait, the doubt that his judgment might be wrong, and upon finding his brother who should be willing to allow himself to be investigated, see, that's a holdback. Wait, I mean, you know, I could be wrong about this thing. I mean, is, who is the person really? What, how does, I understand that that is really significant that we would look at that and wait, put the brakes on. 
That's good. Putting the brakes on is good, but not doing it at all may not be good either. If you go to your brother and he's found not to be guilty, well, then he simply proves his innocence and both brothers should become closer. Why? Because the one brother's concerned about the other brother and he's not going there to nail his hide to the wall. He's going there to find out whether he's right or wrong about what he sees. And, and if he's proved to be wrong, then it's, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And the other brothers say, oh, it's okay. You know, I understand that you're just trying to help me. That's the way it should go. Does it go like that in churches? Does it, does it go at all? If, on the other hand, he's found guilty, if he's doing something wrong, maybe he's not aware of it, maybe he is and he's defiant. Well, if he's defiant, then you go with two or three others. And if he continues to be defiant and he's not going to turn from this thing, there's no, no, look, I've had brothers for years come to me with the problems that they have. And when they come to me with the problems they have, I never say, never. And if I had them before me right now, and I'll have to do some interviews with them, I never beat them with what they, they're struggling with. I may give them some counsel, pray for them, you know, but you hold a person's hand who's struggling with something because they are aware of it and they don't want to do it. So if, on the other hand, they won't turn from it, then you go before the whole church if it goes that far, and then in the hope that by putting the person out of the church, oh, I know how unloving that sounds, they will see that you're really sticking up for the person, you're really trying to be a help, you don't want to, you know, if they're not given evidence at this point of being saved, because these saved people, may, when they're found guilty in their sin, and they may not see it right away, but in a little while they will, and then they'll have, be in the struggle. That's what we do. When we see sin, we struggle with it. We don't, so if you're not struggling with it, if you're just willing to live with it, well, that may be an indication that the person's not saved. So then when the person goes out and they feel the loss, if the, it's a real loving community, uh, that loss would bring up a real Christian to their senses and they would come back and say, I'm sorry, you know what, I was wrong, I'm in sin, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, the other thing. And then they're restored. And that's the purpose for it, is to restore them. Now I'm going through these things in order to understand that where the Holy Spirit is present, these kinds of admonitions that we have from the scripture get fulfilled. When we're living in the flesh, we're okay with not doing all kinds of things. And I'm not going to go down, it's a long list that the church avoids. Why? Because we're living in the flesh. There are three distinguishing differences between Adam's race and Christ's race. Adam's race believes the devil's words and therefore they acquire his traits of murder or hatred and lies. The person who turns to Christ and acknowledges hateful, lying ways and therefore turns to Christ for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. The one that is reconciled to Christ has been humbled at the cross and he begins to make humility a lifelong pursuit. And in that humility, we go to one another as we're led by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, not the flesh, in the power of the Spirit. That, that's what the power of the Spirit is all about. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about spiritual gifts and miracles. And if people want to believe that those things take place today, and I do believe that miracles can take place today, 
But I, I don't think we're living in an apostolic age. We're not even living in an age of revival. If we were living in an age of revival, we'd be living holy lives, which would mean we would be giving heed to ad admonishing people. And a long list of things, I'm not taking the time to go into today, into how we ought to live in the, in the church before the world. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, 816. The Spirit testifies that we're children, and if we would just listen, we would be free from far more sin in our lives because we would believe in the reality, the reality of our induction into God's family that makes us God-like. We've been given a new heart. Old things have passed away. Old things are becoming new. When we truly believe, if we live it, and if we love one another, when we truly believe the gospel, we live the gospel. When we truly believe the, the gospel, we love one another. And the believing in the gospel is believing in Jesus Christ. Division begins to come to an end with all denominations, with the end of denominations, the beginning of love. Are we, are we divided today or are we one? There's, there's one of those things uh, that we don't see well. We see everybody in their own denomination happy with it, and you know, if other people just don't want to buy into our denominational ways, our religious ways, well, then that's just too bad for them. Yeah, that doesn't sound very loving to me. This is what the scripture says. Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Look. For all the study of the Word of God that we take place in our, na in our nation, why aren't we one? I mean, if I believe the Bible correctly and you believe the Word of God correctly, since God is not divided, why would we be divided? Would, wouldn't we be one? I mean, there can only be one explanation. We are sufficiently wrong and unwilling to change for the sake of unity. We're not going to give up our denominational differences, and the truth is too narrow to say everybody's right. Everywhere there's a division, somebody's wrong. Absolutely. And you want to come together? You've got to be humble. The amount of division we see in the church, we should all back up and say, there's an awful lot of pride in the church. Awful lot of pride in the church. Nobody's right about everything. Nobody's wrong about everything. But there's enough to division to, to understand that we're all wrong. We're all wrong in places. And we can't come together because we're not willing to admit we're wrong. Lastly, in this section of Romans is 8.19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is waiting in the sense that the old heaven and, the, and earth will be done away with as it is going out of existence. And I don't think that day is real far off. A new heaven and earth are yet to be created. Just remember that Israel wasn't a nation for 2,000 years. In 1947, they became a nation. And they're the center of prophecy, make no mistake. In the same way, we are eagerly awaiting our old body to be done away to receive our new body. 8.23, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The, ado the adoption has taken place in the Spirit. 
It still remains to be accomplished in our bodies. Our bodies will be fitted for the new heaven and earth that do not yet exist. We're only given a clue in Revelation 21 about the new earth that says there is no longer any sea. It is probably not a water world. The city, the new Jerusalem, appears to be made of something of the nature of clear glass. You know, like gold. I don't know what that looks like, but it's clear. Revealing there are no barriers, nothing hidden, nothing that separates. You know, maybe just forget about races. That's all done away with. I'm going to talk about that in the future. The, the, the races came in, and there's only two races, Adam and, and, and Christ. Uh, but there are families, there's nations, and all that I came about at Babel is a curse. Believe me, the new heaven and the new earth, all curses done away. Nothing is hidden in the, in the material creation and nothing is hidden in our hearts. There is no night and no need for the sun. Therefore, there is no darkness any longer but a universal, unending light. Nothing could be more horrible than to go from darkness of the soul be cast into outer darkness. There was a time, and we're going to close with this, a Roman centurion told Jesus, my son is paralyzed and tormented. When Jesus heard this, he said, I will come and heal him. The soldier said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm a man of authority. Look, I tell people to come, they come, tell them to go, they go. I tell a slave to do this or that, and he does this or that. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm not worthy to come to your roof. Look, you're the one of an authority, not me. Jesus, you know, he said this. Now, this is what Jesus said when speaking to a Jew, uh, not speaking to a Jew. This was the Roman centurion was a Roman. He wasn't a Jew. He didn't sit under Moses' law. He didn't know the history of Israel. I'm sure a lot like a good Jew. Books uh, and prayers of poetry didn't, didn't recite it. I could be wrong. He could have been introduced to some of these things, but he certainly didn't grow up that way. And he wasn't familiar, undoubtedly, probably with the prophets, and, but, but the Gentiles. He was a Gentile. So knowing all of that, that this is a Roman centurion, he spent his life were, uh, living out in the army, in the wars of, of, of Rome. This is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. See, the Dead Sea, all the minerals go into the Dead Sea, but they don't leave. They just sit there, and that's why you call it the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. So for all the scripture in Israel, all it did was kill people. Well, here's a, a man of faith like Jesus couldn't find in all Israel. And then he goes on and says these very probing, disturbing words. He said, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some are going to weep in brokenness that they didn't make it into the kingdom. Some are going to gnash their teeth with hatred and venom like wretched people. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So, a man of faith is a man of humility. 
A man of faith is a man who recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ. A man of faith is a man who understands and is humble. But the people, the sons of the kingdom, at that time was Israel. The sons of the kingdom today, whether a Jew or a Gentile, is a Christian. Living under a new covenant, fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So he would be speaking today. He would be speaking to people who sit under the light of the gospel, but they're going to be cast into outer darkness. Many will say to me, Jesus said in in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? What's that name? Jesus Christ, Christian. And he's going to say to him, I never knew you. I hate to end on such a note as this. Remembering that what I'm talking about is whether we live according to the flesh or according to the spirit. If we're in the spirit, then we belong to God. If someone doesn't have the spirit, he doesn't belong to God. People who live in the spirit are saved. And people who are in the spirit, to some extent, have to be living according to the spirit. Otherwise, they think they're in the spirit, when in reality, they're not. Because to live in the Spirit is also to some degree to live, in the, to live according to the Spirit. I mean, some bring forth fruit of 30, 60, 100. There are those 100 people, self-sacrificing, hum, humble people who love Jesus Christ with all their heart. Some are 60, some 30. Some will go to God and they won't enter into God with abundance. You know, there's, they're going to go through the the fire that will test every man's salvation. We won't lose our salvation. We won't lose the presence of God. But a lot of work's just going to get burned up. And that's for everybody. It's not just for church leaders. So I want to conclude this message with asking you, you know, are you walking according to the flesh or according to the spirit? Are Are you walking according to this pride that just makes you feel like it's okay to be in control? Or are you not okay with being in control because you understand that we are to live under authority and the one who's in authority is Jesus Christ and he's the one who needs to be in control. Control of everything, but in control of me. Control of you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for, as always, a hard-hitting message as it comes from Christ. And Christ speaks as he spoke not only himself in the Gospels, that spoke through inspiration through every person who wrote the, new, the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all inspiration. It's all God working in the hearts of people. And every single person who wrote were inspired, and that includes all from, from Moses, the writer of Job, all through to Matthew. All men who pleased God, all men who were in the Spirit, all men led by the Spirit, even though the fullness of the Spirit was was lacking because knowledge was lacking. The Holy Spirit couldn't enlighten men's minds to the fact that God would sacrifice himself in becoming a man and dying the death of a sinner in order to take our sins away. 
And without that, and a hole that the, un- the New Testament uncovers, can we, could a man in the Old Testament live to the fullness of a New Testament saint? Well, certain, certainly many of them practiced and lived lives that in the New Testament many of us could envy. And we can wonder, how did they do that? I mean, thrown into the lion's den without any fear, You know, we look to the future and we're not sure when the end's going to come and just how much torture and persecution. And yet men in the the 20th century, so many have lost their life for Christ. It's not for us, Lord, to judge those things. There are things we need to judge that we don't. But we don't judge anyone's heart. We don't judge the, uh, the, the hearts of the Old Testament saints or the New. All we need to know is that we humble ourselves unless we see a dear brother living a life that should maybe make some changes, knowing that we ourselves have to make changes all the time and we should be looking to humble ourselves all the time because there's always a need to grow and to become more holy. We're called to perfection. We're never going to see it this side of heaven, but we, we really need to work for it. Lord, Put that spirit of love in our hearts, the spirit of Christ in our hearts, and the need to be holy in our hearts so that we might bless your heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.